All right. Well, if you want to open your Bibles to Revelation 20, we're going to dive back in. If you haven't been here, or if you've only been here for four weeks, uh, <laughs> you missed a lot. Uh, we're at the end of Revelation, and uh, we've been uh, talking about a lot of stuff. Um, actually, you know what might be good is just to... Uh, let me do a, a quick review of what we've talked about, and then let's read Revelation 20 as a whole, and just get our mind back in the game, because uh, it's been a while, and even, even the last few times we got together, um, we actually haven't been in Revelation, we've been in other places. So, Revelation 20 begins with the binding of Satan, the future binding of Satan, and we talked about that, we talked about what it means for Satan to be bound, where he's bound, how long he's bound, uh, and, and the results of that here on earth as he's bound in hell. And we'll talk, uh, we'll, we'll run through that as we read it. Then we talked uh, in Revelation 24 through 6, we talked about the millennial kingdom. It's only three verses in Revelation, doesn't give you a lot of content about the kingdom itself, but just more about the duration of the kingdom and, and, uh, and, and uh, the saints uh, ruling and reigning with Christ during that time. And so what we did is we took three weeks, we went back through uh, Old Testament uh, well, some New Testament stuff, but a lot of Old Testament stuff. We looked at the covenants, uh, the Abrahamic, um, Davidic, uh, New Covenant, Priestly Covenant in the Bible. We talked about how those have to have a, a, a fulfillment in the way that Christ is, or that God uh, declared them and prescribed uh, them. And we talked about that happening in the Millennial Kingdom. We looked at the book of Ezekiel and a lot of things that Ezekiel talks about that, that have not taken place, that cannot take place. Uh, in, in a world that, that looks like ours now, but must take place um, uh, because the Lord said that they would. And we talked about that happened in the, the millennial kingdom. And the same thing with Isaiah. We looked at a bunch of prophecies from Isaiah, talked about those things. And if you look at many of these Old Testament prophecies or even a lot of things that Christ said uh, in the Gospels, uh, these things, um, it, it's going to take something different happening on this planet, both spiritually and geographically, uh, and um, and even even politically for these things to take place, so you you have the option of either looking at them as figurative and they mean something other than the, what the actual the wording means, and you turn it spiritual and figurative or allegorical or something like that, or you say no, he'll do with these things the exact same thing that he's done with other prophecies that we watched fulfilled already, um, and uh, and so it's just going to take. Uh, a different set of circumstances for those things to take place. And the answer is this, this will happen when Christ returns and reigns on this earth as king in Jerusalem on David's throne for a thousand years. Uh, and it makes a lot of sense. And not only does that make a lot of sense with biblical prophecy, but then when you read Revelation, it, it makes Revelation make sense. You just let the words say what they mean. And then when the things that are hard, let's wrestle with those things. And the things that we can't, quite understand because we don't see a world like that in front of us. Let's, we just go, well, I mean, it's going to happen, you know? And uh, so anyway, that's, that's where we're at in Revelation. And uh, we are today, we're at the place where we're going to talk about the future release and the eternal judgment of Satan. So this is the end of Satan, the, the, the eternal end of Satan's influence on earth uh, and his eternal judgment. But before we do that, let's do this. So let's read in Revelation, I'm going to start in 1911. Uh, get our mind back in the game, and then we'll, you know, get, we'll read all the way through 20 and so that we can see where this l- falls into the chronology and falls into uh, these future prophecies. Then we'll talk about what the words actually mean uh, in Revelation 20, 7 through 10. So follow along with me in your Bibles. So in chapter 19, uh, verse 11, this is where heaven opens and Christ comes. Uh, and so this is kind of the, 
um, the beginning of, of things that happen chronologically uh, with his return, after his return, and at the end of the millennial kingdom. So it says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. This is Jesus Christ. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. So when Christ comes, he comes to, to wage war and to judge. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Uh, he's the king of kings. And, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. This is prophecy from Isaiah. Uh, and, and it shows he's coming to, to judge and to spill the blood of all of his enemies. Uh, his name is called the word of God. And, in, and the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. That's all the saints coming with him. Uh, we talked about that. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. So he comes to judge people that live on this earth from the nations, the world, those who do not belong to him. Uh, and he says, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So his return is wonderful and glorious for all those who return with him, who belong to him, or those who belong to him on this earth, who he's preserved through the tribulation. Uh, But for everyone else, this is a terrifying scene. This is God, Jesus Christ, in full glory, splitting the heavens, coming to spill the blood of all of those who exist on the world that are against him and that are fighting against him and his people. Uh, This is the great judgment. Uh, and this is the Battle of Armageddon. And, and Armageddon is, is spelled out here in 17 through uh, 21. It says, And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried out with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds which fly in the midheavens, come and assemble for the great supper of God. So this is a, a, a preordained uh, execution, really. It's not really a battle. We call it the Battle of Armageddon. But it's really an execution. Christ comes to wipe out his people. There's no fighting. There's just... There's just um, uh, uh, the slaughter of all of those who have come to fight against his people, and he invites the birds to come eat their flesh. And so he says, verse 18, So you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast uh, and the kings of the earth. The beast is the Antichrist uh, and the kings of the earth, all those who are following him who have come to wage war against the people of God in Jerusalem. And their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on uh, the, the horse and against his army. So they have come literally to make war against the people of God, against Christ, uh, with this deception that, that there's some possibility for that to, to succeed. Um, and then verse 20, it says, The beast was seized, the Antichrist is seized, and with him the false prophet that accompanied him, that got the world to worship him, who performed the signs in his presence by which he was deceived. Uh, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two, the Antichrist and the false prophet, were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. So mark that because that's going to come up today. So these are the first two people to enter into the eternal judgment, the eternal lake of fire. And they're thrown bodily into the lake of fire at this moment. And that's the end of the Antichrist and the end of the false prophet. The rest who had come uh, under their leadership to fight the people of God were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds filled with their flesh. Now, again, if you're new and you're like, that was a lot of content, just go back and listen to some of the old sermons or other people preach it. But, uh, but basically what just happened was Christ split the heavens open. He's coming to reign on his throne as king. He's coming to usher in the millennial kingdom. But he comes first to judge and make war against all those who live on this earth that are still alive, that have come out to in, in a great 
uh, battle, uh, united under the leadership of the Antichrist and the false prophet to fight against the people of God and, and, and literally to wage war against Christ. And it's just a, a bloodshed from, uh, from uh, uh, Basra, is it? I can't remember the name of the... From Edom all the way up to the plains of Megiddo where the armies have gathered. There's just a, uh, just a, a slaughter. It's, it just says the... the, the Mountains are filled with the blood of the saints. That the the blood uh, is up to the horse's bridle for two hundred miles. It's just probably flowing down into the the Jordan Valley, and um, and just it's just it's just they were slaughtered by Christ. There's no fighting. Um, so that is the end of the world system, the end of uh, the, the the people of the world. And then this happens, verse twenty. It says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss. The abyss is hell, the, the bottomless pit, and uh, a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So this angel is sent to, to, to bind Satan, to restrain him, and to cast him into hell for a thousand years. And hell is a, a prison uh, for angels and for uh, lost souls until the great day of judgment. Uh, he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. So that was the purpose. For a thousand years, Satan is unable to have influence on the earth, unable to do the very thing that he always does, which is deceive the nations. Uh, it says, until, there's a time marker, until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. There's that must be that we just talked about in service, that he's, he's locked away for a thousand years until end of the millennial reign of Christ, and then he must be released. He has to be, because this is part of God's ordained plan. During this time, while he's bound in hell, this is what's happening on earth. I saw the thrones, and they sat on them. Judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or the image, and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. Um, uh, these are, and Again, you have to read the prior to this in Revelation, to understand these are those who held to Christ even in the midst of great trial and tribulation. Uh, these are those who belonged to him and died during the tribulation. It says, they came to life, they reigned with Christ <clears throat> for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So the first resurrection is those who died in Christ. There's a second resurrection of those who died without Christ. It says, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and reign with him for a thousand years. <coughs> so the, 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 the whole scope of the millennial kingdom is right there in those three verses. And all it talks about in Revelation is the fact that all those who have died in Christ come to life, to, they're alive. Either they return with him uh, because they were already belonged to him or they died during the tribulation. They're raised from the dead, but they're all there with him now on earth, reigning and ruling with him for a thousand years as he uh, reigns as king on David's throne. And these are all people that are um, immortal. They are sinless. They have been made holy and complete. They've been glorified. These are eternal beings. These are people that belong to Christ eternally. Uh, these are not those that we're going to talk more about today. <clears throat> it says, then, verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, <clears throat> Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth. So as soon as he's released, right back to doing what he was built to do, if you want to say it that way, or what, what he is part of his nature. 
Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand on the seashore. They came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone that we just read about with the false prophet and the Antichrist, um, where the beast and the false prophet also are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I'm going to keep reading, and then we're going to go back and talk about that. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, uh, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead that were in them. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The end of chapter 20 ends with sin gone. Death is gone. Hell is gone. Satan is gone. The Antichrist and false prophet are already gone. This is the beginning of the eternal kingdom where there is no sin and no possibility of sin ever again, which is what we all pray for, the day we all long for. Um, and uh, so that, that's what chapter 20, chapter 20 is, is a whole chapter really focused on the judgment of, of sin, the source of sin, and the effects of sin to where there is no more sin. That's a summary of everything we're talking about in chapter 20. It's a wonderful chapter. If you belong to Christ, it's a terrifying chapter if you don't, because this is the end. And this is what we all must face before we come to Christ. This is the end of all mankind. We will stand before the great white throne of judgment. All of us will be judged according to our deeds. And every one of us will be thrown into the eternal lake of fire. Along with Satan, the false prophet, the Antichrist. For eternal torment under the wrath of God. Because that is how awful sin is. And that's exactly what all of us deserve. But when you understand that, that is when it breaks us. And we come running to the very one who can save us from his own wrath, which is Christ, who came to die for us, pay for our sins on the cross. He took this, if you want to say it that way, for us. He paid what we cannot pay, uh, and he accomplished what we can never, can never earn or can never have on our own. And that's the love of God. So it's, if you're with him, you'll be rescued by him. If you stand against him, then this is, this is the end. But all that being said, there's, there's not, I wouldn't say a lot of controversy, there's just a lot of different opinions on what this all means. So, in this church, we read the Bible with one, all the way through, historical, grammatical, hermeneutic. The words mean what they say they mean. We, it, you don't have to know the Greek, you just read the English. Whatever the English means is what it means. And so, when it comes to things like this, nothing, nothing changes. There's many spiritual things involved here, but the Lord who created language and gave us the, the gift of language knows how perfectly to communicate through that instrument so that we, his children, can understand his word. And I think that's the way he's done in Revelation. If you just read the words, then you can understand the content of what the Lord has prescribed must happen and will happen. Uh, and it's this simple to understand. And at the same time, it's mind-blowing when we start looking at the, the will of God, especially, like we just talked about in there. Peter couldn't grasp it. Jesus is like, I've come to die. And Peter's like, that will never happen to you. Because that's how our mind thinks. And a lot of times we get to things like this and we're like, well, I don't understand. Why must he be released from prison? You know, why must Satan start another war and deceive all these people on the earth? Uh, multitudes. And, and, and the bottom line answer is because God has ordained it. And there can be no other way. 
But we'll talk about some of those things today and, and what these words mean. Uh, but in the end, it's, it's not hard to grasp and comprehend. Uh, but the depths of what we'll talk about, I mean, there's going to be many things where we're just like, man, that's crazy. You know, what, what, what was that going to look like? What does that mean? So today we're going to talk about the future release and the eternal judgment of Satan. We've already read the verses, uh, Revelation 27 through 10. And I'm breaking it up into three basic things. First, we're going to look at the future release of Satan, uh, what that means. We're going to look at the second point will be the final war of Satan. This is a war different than the, the, the Armageddon war that we talked about. Uh, and then finally, the eternal judgment of Satan uh, in verse 10. So the future release of Satan. Let's look at verse 7 and, and what these, these words mean. It says, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Now, again, that's easy to comprehend. After a thousand-year period, Satan is released. That's what it means. But that being said, there are a few things in here to kind of to, to dig out. First thing, uh, there's a time indicator. When, so there's, there's, we just read right before that, uh, he would be bound in prison in verse 3 until the thousand years are completed. So now, in the chapter, we're there. We're, it was until, in, cha- in verse 3, and now it's when in verse 7. The time has come. A thousand years are over, and it's time for the release of Satan. Uh, again, we've talked about this already uh, a few times, uh, but in Revelation, uh, numbers mean what the numbers mean in, in the English. There's not symbolic use of numbers. Seven means seven. A thousand means a thousand. Uh, it's the only way to actually read the, the book and to make it makes sense. You know, when he talks about seven churches, he's talking about seven churches. You know, when he talks about five angels, he's talking about five angels. So numbers mean what numbers mean uh, throughout Revelation. You don't have to look at them in some symbolic way and mean, well, seven is the perfect number that remains completion or anything like that. It just means seven. And so here, a thousand means a thousand. And when we talk about a thousand years, we're talking about a thousand years, 1,000 time periods of one year. So a thousand years, a millennium. Uh, And so it's a thousand years that Satan has been completely restrained from any influence on this earth. There, there will still be, and we'll talk about this in a second, our own fallen natures that people that have not died and been resurrected and glorified will have to fight with. But there will not be the external temptation that you and I know in this present age while Satan is the ruler of this world and the god of this world. He will be imprisoned. He'll be a prisoner of hell during this time. Not the god of this world, not the ruler of this world. Christ will be ruling on the planet in peace, righteousness, and justice uh, with a rod of iron, um, and, uh, and, and Satan will be completely restrained. He'll have no ability to influence the earth. Uh, and during that time, like I said, Jesus Christ rules and reigns as king. Well, I, I threw these, actually half of one of these quotes and the other quote up here before, but just to give you, uh, this is uh, uh, to reiterate some things we've already talked about, but Michael Vlock and Matt Wehmeyer in their books talking about this says, Satan is incarcerated and confined in a real place called the abyss. So then more than a specific function of Satan is hindered. Satan himself is absolutely confined to a place that results in a complete cessation of all that he does. So zero influence. He can't influence the rulers of this world. He can't influence the politics of this world. He can't uh, tempt in the way that he tempts. There's no influence of Satan during this thousand-year period. Uh, He's in prison. Being in the abyss means no access to the earth. And again, we have other, we looked at uh, 
other places in Revelation that talk about the abyss. Uh, we looked at you know uh, demons crying out to, to Jesus not to torment them or throw them into the abyss before the appointed time, things like that. When anyone is in the abyss, they have no ability to come out. The dude that said he went to hell for 23 minutes or whatever, it did, he didn't. The, the easy answer, nobody does that. No one goes into hell and comes out other than Jesus Christ or anyone Christ gives the key to hell to allow things to come out. But, but no one comes in and out of hell or in and out of heaven on their own. Uh, those are just made up stories by men that want money or notoriety or something or delusional people or somebody that had a dream. I mean, you know, I don't know, but no one went to hell and came back. The binding of Satan means that for the first time in history, mankind will not have to deal with Satan's deceptive tactics. So if Satan being bound means he has no influence on the earth, no one else. I mean, Satan is the most powerful being created by God that we know of, and he can't get out of hell on his own, apart from God allowing it, helping him, and giving the key uh, so no one else can. And then Matt Wehmeyer, to be bound or confined in the abyss is to be totally cut off from any activity or influence upon the earth. So when we talk about Satan being bound... He is cut off from any ability to influence the earth. Uh, We talked about the abyss. I'm not going to go over some of this uh, like we talked about. But what the abyss is, um, is uh, if you look at Revelation 9, uh, verses 1, 2, and 11, Revelation 11 and 17, it talks about the abyss. It's always a place of um, demon imprisonment and captivity. It's a place where souls are kept until the final day of judgment, the great white throne, which we'll talk about in the upcoming weeks. Uh, it's a, a place of torment, so it's, it's similar to the lake of fire. I mean, they're both the eternal wrath of God. They're both the wrath of God being poured out uh, on souls, but there will even be a, a time where, where what is hell now looks like it will be cast into the lake of fire. But all that being said, during this time, Christ reigns on earth in peace. There's long life. There's immediate justice. There's righteousness, mercy, gentleness, love, obedience, and worship here on this planet, which is very different than this planet now. Um, and, uh, and Satan has no influence. Um, and, you know, uh, six times in six verses, he repeats this thousand-year thing. We just read it. Uh, he's bound for a thousand years, verse 2. He's there, in verse 3, until the thousand years are completed. Uh, in verse 4, um, those who came to life reigned with Christ for a thousand years. In verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come back until the thousand years were completed. Uh, in verse 6, um, it says there'll be priests of God and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And then verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released. So it's a chronological thing. Six times talks about this thousand-year period. And so I think just, again, the, the, the easy answer is there will be a thousand-year period where Jesus Christ reigns on this earth uh, as fully God, fully man. Uh, Satan is bound uh, in hell. Uh, he has no influence on the earth. Uh, and that's what's going on here. But the thousand years are now completed, and Satan will be released. And when it talks about him being released, it's a future passive indicative. This is something that must happen and will happen in the future, and it happens to him. So he doesn't release himself. He doesn't break out. He's loosed by God. He's unbound. He's released by God himself. Whether it's the angel that bound him there that unbinds him, whether it's Jesus Christ himself that unbinds him, whether it's God. I don't, we don't know. Uh, you know. Maybe the best biblical answer would be maybe the, the angel that cast him in there at the beginning in verse 1 through 3 is the same angel that opens the pit to let him back out. But he's unbound, and this is all part of the will of God. Uh, Now, why must he be unbound? Why must he be unbound? Uh, The the first answer is because he must, because Revelation 20, verse 3 says he must. There is no other way. Just like there was no other way for Jesus Christ to redeem us 
even though Peter could not comprehend that, and you and I would have done the exact same thing Peter said, we would have stood there and said, no, there is no way that this will happen to you. Uh, we can say that. We can say there's no way that God would allow this. There's no way that God would do this. There's no re- but, but the thing is, is he must be released because God says he must be released. And it's for a short time. It's a very short time. Uh, and so uh, that's the first thing. Um, he will be released. It means to be untied, to be loose, to be unbound. Um, so Satan will be released by God, and he will be released by God to fulfill the Lord's ordered, ordained, prescribed will, uh, which will be a, a, final, a final gathering, a final deception, a final gathering, and a final execution uh, by, by God on all of these people. It says he's released from his prison. The prison here is the abyss that he was cast into. It's the place of binding, like I said. Um, Jesus talks about hell uh, in Matthew 25. I think I wrote this down. Uh, verse 41, um, he talks about, uh, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, to the, to the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, this is obviously also talking about the eternal lake of fire. Uh, but hell itself was prepared for this time period. Uh, it is a place of imprisonment. It is a place that can bind and hold Satan to have no influence on the earth. And it's a place where the demons, some demons are already bound. Others will be bound uh, with Satan, and souls are bound there until the final day of judgment. Um, but he has been bound in, in the abyss or in the bottomless pit or in hell, uh, and he will be unbound and released. And he's unreleased, uh, he's released to deceive the nations once again. Like I said, he did not escape, he does not go free on his own. Uh, he was unleashed to perform exactly what he was prescribed by God to do after the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Um, and I just wrote down uh, Revelation 20, verse 1, Revelation 118 to, to talk about, uh, you know, in Revelation 21, it says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and the great chain. So only he who holds the key is able to open and close the, the gate of hell, if you want to say it that way. And so that's how Satan is cast in. Revelation 118 talks about Christ. This is Jesus Christ himself saying, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. It is Christ who controls uh, all of these things. And so, uh, in the end, it is God who releases Satan from his prison uh, for this final time. If you look at Ezekiel 38, I think one of the other, the main reason why Satan is released is for the glory of God and for the glory of Christ. In Ezekiel 38, 23, uh, which I think um, foreshadows this final battle, uh, God says, I will magnify myself, I will sanctify myself, and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am Lord, when he pours out his wrath on this final army that's come together against his people. So ultimately, everything results in God being glorified, and the release, the, the, if you want to say it that way, the reason Satan is released, uh, and the re- reason he's allowed to deceive, and the reason he's allowed to gather these armies together against God, is so that God himself will be glorified, that Jesus Christ will be magnified, and that we will see the great glory of God as he does exactly what he says he will do, uh, as he judges his enemies and he saves his people. But I wanted to read a quote to you because I thought this was a really good quote that helps us kind of think through why. The question, why? Why must this happen? And, uh, and this comes from Henry Morris's uh, I've, I've told you guys about that. The uh, Revelation record, it's like a little commentary by a Christian scientist talking about, um, a creation scientist, sorry, <laughs> about, uh, about the uh, a Revelation. But I like what he does in the commentary because a lot of times it's, it's written like a preacher. Uh, it's not like a, um, 
yeah, he, he basically writes out, uh, he, he thinks through the scenario and just writes it in a way that I think is really, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's neat. So here's what Henry Morris says. This is a good way I thought of articulating a possible scenario and situation recorded in Scripture uh, and why Satan is released. Uh, he says, during the millennium, everyone will be exposed to the truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ as their creator, redeemer, and king. Uh, they will probably be able to see him personally if they wish, uh, as well as the glorified saints who are more directly accessible to them as their own kings and priests. Now, again, just as, this is him just recapping a lot of things we've read in Revelation, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and giving you a, a picture, uh, articulating a picture of what the earth will be like during the millennium. So, again, there's glorified saints, immortal saints on this earth that are sinless, that are ruling and reigning together with Christ. They're Christ himself... Most likely on David's throne in Jerusalem, the glorified Christ who exists on this planet, the glory of God has filled the temple. Uh, you've got the, the, the sacrifices that we talked that happened during that time that people will uh, remember the fact that that Christ came and died for them in a past age when it was very different than the millennial age. Um, and, uh, but there are people on this earth during that time that have not died that have to be saved by grace through faith in the same way that you and I have to be saved by grace through faith, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Um, and, uh, you know, so they'll, they'll, he'll be here on this earth. Uh, he'll be reigning as king. Uh, he will be the great high priest. Uh, there will have, the temple will be there. There'll be the sacrifices. There'll be glorified saints. It's a different time and a different planet, if you want to say it that way. But they're still, they still need salvation. He says, they will be well instructed in the necessity of substitutionary sacrifice for salvation from sin. As each nation, nation must regularly send delegates to Jerusalem to offer memorial and animal sacrifices, keeping ever before them the remembrance that long ago their great king in Jerusalem had himself borne their sins in his own body, and he died on a tree, on the tree of Calvary to save their souls. And yet, with all these privileges, with every possible incentive to believe on his name and to love and serve him, there will still be a multitude who will reject him in their hearts. These will not be those who first enter the millennium, of course, but will come from the generations of those who follow them. These, for the most part, will refrain from overt acts of sin and rebellion, because again, Christ reigns with a rod of iron during that time, but this restraint for many will be one of fear, not of love. Their hearts won't be the His. To men and women who have been born and raised in such an ideal environment, so that all that they have ever known is peace, prosperity, and righteousness. The stories told them about former ages by their parents and by the, their heavenly rulers and teachers will sound increasingly fanciful as the centuries go by. I mean, think about that. Think about talking about prior to Noah's time on this earth. When we talk about what things were like prior to the flood, what the earth looked like prior to that. When we talk about the rebellion that happened before the flood where angels and demons were in some way cohabitating and creating crazy offspring that were, were fearsome warriors on this earth, when we talk about people living 900 years, I mean, when we say those things, you think of Lord of the Rings. They seem fanciful and just like, it's like those things didn't really happen, but they, they had to have happened. Either that or the Bible's exaggerating Genesis 1 through 11, right? And, or 1 through 5. Um, so it's a past age that you and I have a hard time comprehending. Um, there, there's things on this earth that show us evidences of, of, of civilizations and technologies and things like that, that, that we have a hard time comprehending how those things exist, but we can see artifacts and remnants of things that we can't explain. There's many things that seem fanciful, but existed at one point. Um, and you don't have to go into fantasy, like Lord of the Rings kind of stuff, 
to know that there were things like that that just, they don't exist the way that they did today. And it'll be the same thing for them. There will be a millennial kingdom where Christ is reigning, where sin uh, is, is, looks very different, righteousness is everywhere, and it will be hard for them to understand a society that you and I live in right now. Because the earth will look different, it will be different, things will run very differently. And so, but at the same time, they'll still need to be saved by the blood of Christ, through the grace of God, by faith in what he has done for them. In no other way. That's always the way of salvation. There's a way of salvation before the flood. It was a way of salvation before Israel. It was a way of salvation during the time of Israel. It was a way of salvation for the church age, during the tribulation. And it will be the same thing in the millennial kingdom, in the reign of Jesus Christ. So, sorry, I got off of the quote. So these ancient times will begin to seem glamorous to them uh, with their supposed freedom and excitement. They'll look back at these times and be like, man, they could do what they wanted to do without being judged with a rod of iron, without, you know, that kind of thing, possibly. This is just a, a thought. And many in younger generations will begin to inwardly resent the constraints under which they must live. And now even though Satan is bound and there are no external temptations to doubt God or disobey his will, they are not innocent like Adam and Eve in the garden. Their hearts are naturally, like Jeremiah 17 says, deceitful and desperately wicked. Simply by virtue of genetic inheritance, uh, and they must consciously accept Christ as their personal Savior if they're to be saved, just as their ancestors did. With so little contact with overt sin and with provision of every material, to, material need so easily available, this may be even more difficult for them than it had been for their forebears, which is us. It is apparently for such reasons that the devil, and presumably all of his hosts, must be released for a little season. All these millennial generations, all of which are living, must also be confronted with a clear-cut choice. Will they trust their great Savior and King in Jerusalem? Or will they, when finally they have the opportunity, choose sin as their lifestyle and Satan as their God? This will be mankind's last and greatest test. In former ages, men had used their environmental problems such as poverty, pornography, war, intellectual pressures, and sickness as excuses for rejecting Jesus Christ. But with all these suppressed for a thousand years, there is no more excuse by their own sinful hearts, uh, and and these must be exposed. So, what he's saying here is, so why must Satan be released? One of the reasons, outside of the glory of God, outside the, the foreordained prescription of God that must happen is, for a final test of all those who live on this earth. Will they, will they choose sin or will they choose Christ? Will they choose their desires, just like you and I are faced with today? Or will they submit to the king that they know is in Jerusalem during that time? So I thought that was a good, just a good way to articulate the time and, uh, and why he must be released. So here's the second point, the final war of Satan. The final war of Satan. It says in verse 8, And he, Satan, will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand on the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So that's the final battle. It's very much like Armageddon. The first thing it says is Satan will come out, so he will be released, and when he's released, he's... He's, he's acting on his own volition now, and he comes out immediately. Um, uh, this, t- this verb, 13 times is used in Revelation. It's always used to mean to come out of some place. Uh, angels coming out of the temple, God's people coming out of Babylon, uh, the locusts coming out of the bottomless pit in Revelation 9, 1 through 3. 
Actually, that's a good uh, example. Uh, maybe I didn't put it on my slide. But in Revelation 9, 1 through 3, uh, d- during the fifth trumpet, uh, the bottomless pit is open. And as soon as it's open, demons come out to uh, inflict pain on those who live on the earth. And so in the same way, as soon as the pit's open, uh, Satan comes out to do exactly what he does, which is to deceive the nations. He comes out to deceive the nations. This is his purpose. This is his will. This is his character. This is his nature. Um, to deceive, it just means to lead astray, to cause to wander from the truth. Uh, it's used 39 times in the New Testament and always for the same purpose. This is what Satan does. A thousand years in hell will not reform Satan an, an ounce. He comes out to do exactly what he... It, it probably just infuriated him more and, and gave him a thousand years to plan, prepare, and wait for this moment. And Satan knows scripture. We watched him quote it to Christ, right? Satan knows this time's coming. And uh, says a thousand years of, of, of him preparing for this moment. And he comes out and his evil, wicked nature and will align perfectly with God's righteous foreordained plan. Um, and, and he does what he's purposed to do. He's released by God uh, and, his, and, and, and to do his, his evil will. Uh, Revelation uh, 12, 9, 13, 14, 19, 20, 20, verses 2 through 3, and 20, verse 10, all talk about, this is just what Satan does. He deceives. He deceives the nations. Um, in Revelation 12, 9, it says, the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent who, of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. That's, that's what he does. That's what he's doing currently. Revelation 20, uh, he laid hold of the dragon. We just talked about that. They throw him into hell so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. What he has done from the very beginning with Adam and Eve all the way up to this present day and all the way up until that moment is deceive the nations. For a thousand years, he will be unable to deceive the nations. When he's released, he will begin deceiving the nations again for a short time. This is just what he does. And finally, when he's cast into hell, um, he's unable to deceive any longer. But this is, this is how you summarize who Satan is. He is the one that deceives all the nations, whether it's through false religion, whether it's through the, the pleasures and, of this world or the material things of this world, our own pride. I mean, whatever, it, all tactics come back to this, to deceive, uh, to, to lead astray uh, from the one thing that will save our soul, which is Jesus Christ. And it says he comes to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. It's just a way to, say, to describe the whole, the whole earth. Uh, one commentator talks about it being north, south, east, and west, just saying from all directions, from all places, he comes to deceive all of those who belong in all the nations during this time. We talked about this already. During the thousand, it's a thousand years of long lifespan and very little sin. And, and, uh, and so the world will repopulate quickly. Uh, there will be many nations. These nations will come to worship God in Jerusalem. We see that in Ezekiel and Isaiah. They come to do sacrifices. They come to pay homage to Jesus Christ and to worship him. There's many nations during this time, many people during this time. Many children have been born, and they've had children, and they've had children. Think about that. I mean, we have, what, 8 billion people on the planet, something like that? I'm not, I don't know how many people are here right now. But that's with us dying after 70 years. You know, you think of, like, if, if everyone was still here from the past 1,000 years, and there was little sin that to, to cause premature death. I mean, this place is going to repopulate in greater numbers that we can understand right now very quickly. So there's many, many, many people on this planet that have not died uh, that must be saved by God's grace through faith, through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it says when he's released, he deceives uh, worldwide deception. Uh, there's a repopulation of the earth during this time. MacArthur has a, a good quote here. He says, 
though the initial inhabitants of the millennial kingdom will all be redeemed, you know, so when it begins, you got all believers. You got either those who are glorified and eternally sanctified with him, or those who believed in him and made it through Armageddon battle and all that. And those are believers. Um, he says, but they will still possess a sinful human nature. Uh, and as all parents have done since the fall, they will pass this in nature onto their offspring. So, I mean, again, I think of like me and my wife are both believers. We're both born again, but we have sinful children. You know, you don't, you don't, because you're both born again, have children and they're born again already. You know, we're, we're born with sinful natures because we inherit that from Adam. Um, and so even during the millennial kingdom, everyone born during that time will be born with sinful natures and they'll need to be saved. He says, each successive generation throughout the thousand years will be made up of sinners in need of salvation. Many will come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but amazingly, despite the personal rule of Christ on earth, despite the most moral society the world will ever know, many others will love their sin and reject him. And this is, this is key right here. The issue regarding salvation is never a lack of information. It is a love of sin. You know that. You got people in great churches like this that have all the information deep biblical theology that love their sin more than Christ. Information doesn't save you. You've got to be born again. You must love Christ more than your sin, and you must follow and submit to him rather than your desires and your sinful nature. And that's the fight we fight as Christians all the time, right? Every day I'm alive, I'm fighting my sinful nature. Every day. And, but that's what it means to be a Christian, is putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And we're, we're, we're living as if we're dead to, this, to, to our sinful desires and our flesh. And we're living uh, uh, in submission to Christ, who rules and reigns within us. But we still have that fight. But again, that's the, in the end. Salvation is never a lack of information. It, it is a love of sin. That's it. Now, any sinner would try to make it more complicated than that, make it more logical than that. But it's never. Yeah, that's it. You just love sin more than Christ. Or you love Christ more than sin. And that's only a work that he can do in us. Uh, Robert Thomas in his commentary says, Unbelievers will exist in very large numbers among the generations subsequent to the one populating the earth initially in the millennium. And these will be fair game for the devil's, devil's deceptive campaign. So again, very different world, but same, same uh, sinful nature. Uh, a lack of outside influence for sure, but they still have to deal with their, their heart. They have to deal with their desires. And when Satan is released, he's going to deceive many. It says he comes out, uh, deceives the four corners of the earth. It says Gog and Magog. Now, this is something that gets everybody like, oh, what does that mean, Gog and Magog? Because you've got Ezekiel 38 and 39, which we looked at, that actually uses those words. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, the majority of all of that only makes sense for the Armageddon battle. All right, so if you go read Ezekiel 38 and 39, the majority of the things that are happening in that time are that Armageddon battle description. And it makes the most sense to look at it that way. However, there are some things in there that seem to refer to something that doesn't make sense during the battle of Armageddon, uh, of which we got right here. Uh, in verses 10 through 16, you got a few things here that, that make a lot of sense to happen after the Millennial Kingdom. All right? uh, it says, the, the Lord God says it will come about in that day. And again, if you weren't here when we did the Ezekiel thing... This is all a description of this Gog from Magog. There's a, a guy named Gog, comes from Magog, a ruler, uh, and, and, um, and, and he assembles armies to come and fight against God, uh, against, against Jerusalem, against God's people, and against the Messiah Christ. It says, so this is just right in the middle of this. It says, it'll come about in that day, thoughts will come into your mind, Gog, uh, and you will devise an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. Now, again, I don't want to get too deep into this because it doesn't matter, I don't think. 
whether this is Armageddon or the final battle or a foreshadowing, both, both are very similar. Both are a battle where all people come to fight against Jerusalem, against the people of God, to try to exterminate the people of God and to fight against Christ. They're both that. But look at this. So they're coming up against a land of unwalled villages. I'll go up against those who are at rest and live securely, all of them living without walls, having no bars or gates. So this is a time of no hostility, no war, no fighting. That does not sound pre-Armageddon at all. It sounds like millennial kingdom uh, a situation or um, stuff. So to capture, spoil, to seize, plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited against the people who are gathered from the nations. Now that's something that's talking about Israel. So Israel's been gathered and they're there uh, who have acquired cattle and goods who live at the center of the world. So again, everything is focused on Jerusalem, focused on this place. These are the people of God that have been gathered. They're living in Jerusalem. Therefore I prophesy, son of man, say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel are living securely, that sounds very much post, uh, this sounds like millennial stuff, Um, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north, that's Armageddon stuff, and you you and many people with all of you, all riding horses, a great assembly, a mighty army, you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. That's a lot of people. Uh, It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog. So, like I said, this to me sounds like this final battle after the millennium, but it doesn't matter. I don't care where you land. Either way, this is describing a final battle against the Lord. It's a, a final battle against the people of God that have been gathered in Jerusalem. And, and it even gives you a reason what, why he's doing it. There's a purpose statement there. God says, I will bring these people against my people Israel so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes. This is for the glory of God. This is for everyone to see that Jesus Christ is king and rules and reigns forever. And then Satan will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. But whether this is talk, Ezekiel 38 and 39 or talking about Armageddon or talking about the final battle, to some degree... It's like Robert Thomas says in his commentary, history repeats itself. The final battle is just like Armageddon. And if they didn't learn a thousand years before, here it comes again. They're going to repeat the exact same mistake they did the first time when Christ broke the heavens open. We just read about that and slaughtered them from, for 200 miles. So either way, whether this is a description of Armageddon or a description of the final battle in Ezekiel, we do know there is a final battle because Revelation 20 verses 8 through 9 describe that final battle. This is called the war. This is the war that happens at the very end. Uh, It's led by Satan. He gathers people from all over the world, and they come to fight against God. And this time, instead of the first time where Christ returns and just slaughters them and there's blood everywhere, this time fire comes out of heaven and destroys all who have come to fight against him. So Satan, it says, is released. He deceives the nations. He gathers them together. Here in Ezekiel, you see that God himself gathers them together. They assemble to fight against God. And this is the war, uh, definite article. It's, it's like, uh, and I was saying, you know, it's very similar to Armageddon. You could call Armageddon a precursor to this war or foreshadowing of this final war. Uh, but either way, it says the number was like the sand uh, of the sea. It says of the sea. It's innumerable people. And it says on the people's part, the people of the world, they come up. They, they willingly go. They willingly follow. So on, on, on their part, this is of their own volition. They come, they, they come to fight against Christ and against his people out of 
possibly envy and desire for the things that they have, whatever it may be, or the desire to rid the world of this one that rules with a rod of iron so they can fulfill their own desires and do what they want to do. I, we don't know in the end, but it's, it's a love of sin, ultimately. And it says they come upon the broad plain of the earth, which, again, makes sense with the, the geographical changes that happen before the coming of Christ. Uh, they surround the camp of the saints, which is just describing all of the holy ones of, of the people of, of uh, Israel and of Jerusalem that are in the holy city. And it says, and they surround the beloved city, which is Jerusalem. And so basically, these people from all the nations come. They gather around the place that is the center of the world at that time to fight Christ, to fight the people of God. And just like in Armageddon, Satan loses the battle. And it's not even a battle. It's, it's an execution. Um, just like Armageddon a thousand years earlier, this is just a divine judgment, an execution of the Lord's enemies. It says that fire came down from heaven. So it just means fire falls from heaven. We have a, a foreshadowing of that with Sodom and Gomorrah. If you know that from Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah were sinful cities. Fire poured down from heaven, destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah to where they were no more all the way up to this present day. Uh, God wiped them out. The difference between Sodom and Gomorrah and this battle is in Sodom, fire comes down to destroy the city and all those who live in the city and anyone that got out of the city was spared. Uh, in this battle, fire comes down to protect the city and all those who are not in the city that don't belong to God are incinerated around the city. Uh, so everyone outside of the city uh, is consumed. And again, in his little way of doing it, Henry Morris kind of paints a picture with his words about this. He says, uh, and again, this is just him commentating on this description. He says, a falling ring of fire will surround the holy city and the legions of saints, radiating outward in all direction until every last unregenerate human being is engulfed and burned to death in the descending and surging sea of flames. This is but a foretaste of what will shortly become the rebels' eternal fate after their bodies are resurrected and cast into the lake of fire. And in the meantime, their disembodied souls will commingle for a brief interlude with the raging demons of Satan, whose last and greatest effort to dethrone God has terminated in abject failure. So that's the final battle. And again, very different than the Armageddon battle. Um, there was no fire from heaven uh, incinerating everyone in the Armageddon. It was Christ himself that comes to, to judge. So that's the final war. And then the eternal judgment of Satan. After the battle is done or after the incineration is over and, and, and all the enemies of God are done, there's one final enemy to be dealt with, and that is the, the fallen angel, Satan, who is behind all of this. He says in verse 10, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet also are, or are, are also, uh, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Again, the devil who deceived them, this is just a title. It means the slanderer. Uh, it's used 37 times in the New Testament, 32 times to name Satan. Um, and uh, when anytime it talks about the devil, it just means the one who slanders. The slanderer is cast uh, into the eternal lake of fire. He was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. Again, Revelation 19.20 talks about uh, the lake of fire that burns with, uh, that burns with brimstone. Uh, I didn't put that up there. Um, but uh, it's, it's different than hell, and at the same time, same concept, same purpose, same thing. The beast and the false prophet are the first occupants of the eternal lake of fire, Revelation 19, verse 20. Uh, hell and Hades are thrown into the uh, eternal lake of fire. 
uh, soon. We'll see that. Actually, there's six things consigned to the lake of fire here in chapter 19 and 20. Uh, the Antichrist in chapter 19, the false prophet in chapter 19, they're thrown bodily into the lake of fire, and then the rest of the people at Armageddon are slaughtered. Satan is now cast into the lake of fire. So there's three people in there, or three beings in there before the, the great white throne of judgment. And then after the judgment of all people, death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. There is no possibility of death. Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. So hell, the abyss, the bottomless pit, there's no need for that anymore in the eternal kingdom because there is no more sin. There is no more judgment. All that's done. And then finally in verse 15 of chapter 20, all unbelievers, all those who reject Christ, all those who reject God and reject the, the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ are thrown into the eternal lake of fire along with all those things. So six things consigned to the lake of fire. Uh, and then in Revelation 20, 10 through 15, it, it, it says it all. It says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. The beast and the false prophet uh, are there also. They will be tormented day and night forever. In verse 11, I saw the great white throne. Uh, Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead that were in them. Death and Hades gave up the dead in them. They were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And then verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the end. That's the end of sin. That's the end of death. That's the end of Satan. That's the end of all sinners. This is your end. If you don't belong to Jesus Christ, it should be terrifying to any of us. For any believer... It should, it should be a, a moment of, of, of broken, humble rejoicing that God, by his wonderful grace, not because of anything that I've done, anything that I am, has saved me from his eternal wrath by pouring that on his son on my behalf because of his love for me and his love for his son. I mean, that is the most wonderful thing ever. But don't let any of us think that for any reason at all that we could ever escape. That This is our fate. This is the fate of all mankind and all sinners we are, we are children of Satan until we are snatched out of his kingdom, reborn by God and adopted into the family of, of Jesus Christ. And all that can only happen through the blood of Christ, not by anything that we do. Mass won't get you there. Praying magical prayers won't get you there. No religious work will get you there. You're not good enough to get there. It's only by what Christ has done for us. And that's the greatest thing, I think, to learn from this whole thing is, is all will end up in the eternal lake of fire along with Satan, the false prophet, and the Antichrist, and death and Hades. But on the other side of that is all those who belong in Christ. This is the beginning of the eternal redemption of all of creation, the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ, where there is no more sin, no more possibility of sin, no more fighting sin, no more, no more, no more fighting against your desires and, 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 and your lusts and, your, and, and the things that wage war in your mind, your heart all the time. It will be peace and it will be rest and it will be perfect righteousness with Christ forever. That's what he gives us through the blood of his son. But going back to this, it says they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Uh, the word tormented here, it, it means to be tortured. It's affliction, agony, misery, and suffering. It's the eternal judgment of God. The, 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 the best word to describe it is, is eternal torment. The demons know this. I mean, you know, we see glimpses of this in the Gospels when they see Jesus Christ. This is, a, this is something to keep in mind. You know, a lot of times people, and I know we don't do this here at this church, and you might have a better theology than this or whatever. You know, people are like, oh, the Old Testament God is the God of judgment, and then Jesus comes. He's the God of love or whatever. You know, it's like a different, but, but it's Christ. It's Christ's judgment that we poured out on people in the lake of fire for all eternity. It's Christ who consigns people to the lake of fire. It's Christ. I mean, you talk about, terror 
It's Jesus Christ is the one that judges. And the demons knew this. Demons have better theology than the majority of churches that exist on the planet right now. When they saw Christ in his humility, look at what they said about him. Even in his humility, they knew who he was. Demons tremble in fear at the potential of the eternal lake of fire. When demons met Christ, a demon-possessed man met Christ in Matthew 8, 29, he says, What business do we have with each other, son of God, Jesus? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know about this time. The time that we're talking about right now in Revelation 20, uh, uh, 7 through 10, these demons were looking at the, the Christ in his humility going, have you come to judge us before this time? They, they were concerned about being thrown into hell ahead of this judgment. Mark 5, 7, same thing, different scenarios, shouting with a loud voice. Uh, this demon-possessed man said, what business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God, I implore you by God, do not torment me. Demons know that Christ will torment them forever in his wrath, in the eternal lake of fire and in hell. Luke eight twenty eight, seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, what business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you, do not torment me. So again, Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior, our friend, he is the one who died for our sins, and, and, and he is our hope of redemption and salvation from this. But I just wanted to throw that out there to show you that demons understand that it is Christ who will torment them forever in his wrath and judgment, in hell and in the lake of fire. Uh, in Revelation 14, 9 through 12, again, another angel, a third one, following them, said with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image and who receive the mark of his name. But here's the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. It, it's, it's Christ or it's that. It's, it's you, you believe in him now and he saves you from his wrath by taking the wrath that we deserve. Or you reject him now and you basically tell God, bring it. I'm willing to face this on my own. Bring your wrath for eternity. That's terrifying. This is why we have to tell. We, talk, we prayed about our, our, our unbelieving family members and our friends. I mean, this, this makes it serious. It's easy to, to forget. It's easy to get lazy or sluggish. It's easy to think you'll have another day. But we have to remember, this day comes for all of us, for all people, and those who don't belong to Christ will one day face what this in Revelation 14 is talking about, what we're talking about in Revelation 20. They will be consigned to the eternal lake of fire for all eternity to endure the torment of Christ in fire and brimstone forever. And that ought to crush us personally, cause us to go stay far from sin, close to Christ, cling to Christ, get rid of all the things that distract us and keep us from following him, hindrances and all that stuff, get rid of those things. But then it also ought to make us pray for and go after those who we love, who God has put in our, our um, area that, that, that need him. So, and again, the, the, the timing of this day and night forever and ever, this is eternal torment. And even when it talks about Satan being confined there, it says with the beast and the false prophet, they're currently there. So after a thousand years, they're still there in the eternal lake of fire, still being tormented. There is no annihilation. There's no end of hell. There's no, 
you pay for your sins after a certain amount of time in hell. There is no payment for sin other than the blood of Christ. You've got to get that out of your mind, too. That, that, I guess, a Catholic mentality or a bad theology of, like, hell is making some sort of atonement. It doesn't. It's just wrath forever. There is no atonement for your sin other than the blood of Christ. So it's like you can spend eternity in hell. You have not made one step, clo- or, or you haven't paid for a, a single sin that you ever committed. You rejected his son. You endure his wrath forever. It's eternal torment. But the good news here is Satan is done. Finally gone. Forever crushed. Never to deceive again. Redemption and salvation have finally arrived. Almost. There's one more thing. And all of creation is freed from the deceit of Satan. There's not a lot of Old Testament uh, things that foreshadow this. Other than uh, Isaiah 24. Uh, Isaiah 24 verses 21 through 22. It says it happens in that day. Talking about the, the final day of the Lord. That the Lord will punish the hosts of heaven on high. So that's all the, the demons and, and Satan's. That's the spiritual things. The kings of the earth on earth. They will all be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon. So this is hell. They're, they're confined together. Um, and they'll be confined in prison. And after many days, they'll be punished. I think Revelation 20 gives us a time marker on the many days. Many days is a thousand years. After a thousand years, they'll be punished uh, forever. Um, the only other things, Old Testament-wise, I didn't write these down. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, uh, talk about Satan, uh, Satan's creation and then his fall. Uh, in Isaiah 14, uh, speaking of Satan, it says, Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Uh, and then Ezekiel 28, it talks about in verse 19 that he will cease to be forever. There is no second rebellion. There's not going to be another fall of man. There won't be any more sin. There's no potential for sin, no potential for death. It's all gone forever. The eternal lake of fire is where all of these things will be consigned forever. Satan himself is gone forever. All unbelievers are gone forever. Not gone like annihilated, gone like eternally tormented. Uh, and there, that is the redemption of the children of God. There is no redemption. There's no redemption of creation. There's no salvation for us with the existence of sin still possible. This is the final, the final uh, end of sin, sinners, Satan, death, hell, all of it. And after that is, is the eternal kingdom. So the implications of that, first thing, joy. If you belong to Christ, this future judgment of our adversary prescribing the word of God, must happen. It cannot fail. The word of God will not fail. This must take place. There is an end to Satan that has already been... We, I mean, he didn't have to tell us this. We could have just trusted that one day this will all be over, but he told us exactly when and how. And, and, and he must do what he says he will do. So there's joy that comes in that. There's joy that comes in knowing that he will redeem creation and all of those who belong to him. And all of that is only possible through the blood of Christ. So there's joy in all of this. There is a day of rest coming. There is a day when there is no more fight. There is a day when we will be together with him forever with no more sin. But there also should come with this a trembling and a fear uh, that reminds us, you and me who profess Christ, do not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't ever underestimate the enemy and don't ever play with sin in this life. There's many people that begin well that fall away, right? The parable, the, the, the sower and the seed. Many people spring up with joy. They're grateful for salvation, but they fall away because of persecution and hardship in this world, or they fall away because of, of pleasures and, and, and lusts in this world. So be, beware of, of those things. But then also, like I said, for those that we know that don't belong to him, we must tell them about this and about Christ and what he has done for us. Uh, and there's strength. Strengthen this. Remain close to Christ. 
get rid of the hindrances and the encumbrances and the things of this world and remain tight with him. He is the one that controls all things, even the timing of all of these things. And he is the one that, that gives us the ability and the strength uh, to persevere to the end. And so cling to Christ, stay close to him, and remain in him, follow him, live a life of holiness, and stay close to the church. Be men and women of prayer, men and women of the word, because this is, this is the prescribed rule of God. Let me pray for us.